Hebrews chapter 4, it's on page 1186. Children can be dismissed to Children's Church. I really like that new song. What a beautiful uh, rendition of the Lord's uh, Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 1186 as we continue to study through Hebrews. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the Gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, His work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere He has spoken about uh, the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all His work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, again, God set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So does anyone else here find that passage really confusing? Maybe it's crystal clear to you. First time I read that, I was like... What? It, it's just, you know, it goes around and around and, and I had a hard time following the logic. In fact, I think I've always had a hard time with this passage. I, I feel like in studying for it, this is the most I've understood it ever as a Christian. Uh, someone came up to me before this service and said, by the way, I, I was reading a commentary somewhere that said this is one of the three hardest passages in the Bible to interpret. I was like, oh, great. You know, I wish you would have told me that like after the sermon so I wasn't freaked out. But so it's just kind of confusing. I mean, at one level, I think this is a really simple passage. And, and yet at a deeper level, it's, it's confusing and complex. And, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, like, what's the simple part? Because I kind of missed that. But, you know, it really is. Like, at one level, let me just put it this way. What is the main point of this passage? What is it that you and I are supposed to do as a result of this passage? And I think the answer is really simple. Enter God's rest. I mean, that, that's the takeaway. When you and I leave this place, what we're supposed to do is to enter God's rest. I mean, that's simple. That's, that's pretty much, you can pick that up out of the passage. Look at verse 1, for instance. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that no one of you be found to have fallen short of it. So, be careful that you don't fall short of entering God's rest. And then at the very end of the passage, verse 11, we have the command reiterated in slightly different words. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So that's the main point, entering God's rest. So the confusing part is, what in the world does that mean? 
What does it mean to enter God's rest? You know, if I, if I kind of nod off during a sermon, did I enter God's rest for a moment? I mean, you're like, <laughs> what, what is it? How, how do you do it? Is, is it somewhere in Hingham? Do I go to a certain building? You know, what does it mean to enter God's rest? And that's what verses 2 to 10 in between set out to sort of explain for us. And I think that's the confusing part of this passage. You know, so in the beginning, enter God's rest. I got it. Then it gets all complex. And then at the end, let us enter the rest. But So I want to really wrestle with that middle part today. I want to do two things in this sermon. I just want to, number one, probably spend the bulk of the time explaining what I think it means to enter God's rest. And then talk about uh, entering that rest. And I think that'll be obvious. And there's an urgency to this. this maybe you're thinking like, well, what, what do I care? Well, there's an urgency. Look again at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, that phrase, be careful, is actually, I think, a little soft in English translation here. In Greek, it's actually the word be afraid. You know, be afraid. Be very afraid. (laughs) We're supposed to toss and turn over this, entering God's rest. It should keep us awake at night. It should give us a little anxiety. You know, we're very concerned about whether or not the stock market's going to pull out of its spiral in the next nine months and start recovering some value. You know, we're worried about our children and their development and how they're doing in school and our grandchildren. We're worried about, um, uh, you know, health issues that we may have. But, but God is, is telling us, you know, there's something that's really important that makes all those things as important as they are seem like small potatoes. There's something you should really be concerned about that makes all those things very much secondary or even tertiary. And look again at verse 11. He says, Let us therefore make every effort. So we have to work hard to make sure that we're striving to enter God's rest. That There's a, a real call to action and, and initiative here. So this is important. So what is it then to enter God's rest? What does that mean? How do you do that in the 21st century? What would that look like in our lives? That's what I want to try to unpack. So, so I want you to sort of join me on a detective kind of quest. We're going to sort of trace the idea around, and it might feel like we're on a rabbit trail for a little bit. Remember, this is a complex passage. But I think we're going to be able to track down to answer the basic question, what does it mean to enter God's rest, which will, I believe, open up the whole text to us. So let's look back at chapter 4, verse 1 for our first clue. It's the first word is our first clue. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you have been found to fall short of it. So the therefore is important. What that means is that this whole sort of confusing passage is drawing a conclusion based upon what came before it. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you were here when we studied what came before it. It was chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Do you remember that passage? And if I could just, for those of you who weren't here, if I could just summarize last week's passage in one sentence, I might put it this way. Beware of unbelief like the Israelites under Moses had. That's how I would summarize chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Beware of falling into unbelief and doubting the promises of God like the Israelites under Moses did. That, that was the whole point of last week's text. All right. So uh, you remember the story. We studied it last week. Uh, Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt they go through the Red Sea at parts and it comes back together. And then they go through the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments. 
and then they truck on through the wilderness and they come to the edge of the promised land. And there on the edge of the promised land, it's about time to go and God's saying, all right, time to go in. But the people look at the promised land and they say, I don't know. (laughs) There's there's a lot of people in there in the promised land and they have a lot better armor and weapons than we do and they have big cities and I don't think we can take the promised land. I I don't think we should go in. And and Moses and Joshua and Caleb are, are saying, yeah, let's go. God says we can do it. If God says we can do it, we can do it. But the bulk of the people of Israel rebelled and they said no. We don't want to go in there. That's too dangerous. We want to go back to Egypt. And so they start going back. And and in that catastrophic moment in Israel's spiritual history, when they utterly failed God, that's when God says, you're not going to enter my rest. Ah, so that's where this idea of God's rest comes from initially. So, so let's just look at uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. If you are here last Sunday, you'll remember this. This is a quotation from Psalm 95, and it's a reflection upon Israel's failure of faith at the Promised Land. See what it says in verse 7? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. You're back under Moses. Don't do that again. During the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall what? Never enter my rest. So in the original passage last week, entering God's rest means going into the promised land. So no longer having to wander around the wilderness like a bunch of nomads living in tents. You can go in the promised land, no longer eating manna out in the wilderness, which is travel food, but going to the land flowing with milk and honey. No longer living in tents, but resting in the promised land in your own home with brick and mortar. Go into to being at rest and at peace with God. That, that's what it meant last time. So let's go back now to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So we can enter God's rest today. Well, now I'm confused again. So, so what is he saying? Is he saying that, that the way to obey this passage is that we all need to get on a plane and go take over Palestine? What? Is this calling for another crusade? You know, that was a disaster when the church did that. So what are we, what are we supposed to do? Is, it telling, is that what this is about? Literally going back to the rest, the promised land of Israel? No. I think that what's happening here is that the author is using the promised land of Israel as a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of something greater. That Israel going into the promised land was like a little picture for us, a physical picture of what it really means to enter God's rest. So God's rest is something bigger that we can enter into today. Okay, so then what is it? Again, what is God's rest? And this is where the author begins to help us now. He wants to take us back to the initial rest of God, which was even before the promised land. And so if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 2, read along with me. He says, For we also had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard of was no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. Here's that quote again from Psalm 95. So I declare on my oath and my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Okay, focus on that last two words, my rest, God's rest. And the author's going, okay, my rest. When is God's rest? 
When in the Bible did God rest? Right? It was in creation, right after He made the world. So the author seizes upon those words. Aha! God's rest. It wasn't at the promised land. It was before that. It was way back in creation. So he says in verse 3, um, sorry, yeah, verse 3, and yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So the author says, aha, entering God's rest isn't just the Israelites going into Palestine, but God's rest is something that predates that. In fact, God's rest began way, 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 way back before that when God first created the world. That's the, the time we hear about God resting. Okay, so now let's follow that clue. What, it, what was going on back there in that original resting of God? Okay, put a bookmark here. Let's go back to that story. Let's read it for ourselves. Genesis chapter 2. I won't give you the page number. I'll let you find it yourself. It's near the front. Genesis chapter 2. Actually, let's start at Genesis 1, verse 31. This is the days of creation. God's making the world. And then on the sixth day, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He was doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. So we have God creating for six days, then God rests. Question for you. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Was God pooped? Was He like, woo, I'll tell you what. Oh, that... That making a universe business, uh, that just tuckered me out. Where's my throne? I need to sit down here. Hey, you archangel, you know, iced tea right now. I'm I'm, I'm tired. I could not make one more nebula. You know, it's like I'm just, I'm wiped out. I mean, you know, it's silly. But, like, okay, that's not what it means for God to rest. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't, you know, get wiped out. He he doesn't, there's no limit to his resources and his energy. He's an infinite God. So, so what does it mean that he rested? And I believe it is a rest, not of exhaustion, but as you see in the text, the emphasis is on a rest of completion. Not a rest of fatigue, but it's the rest of a finale. Okay? It's not the rest of a guy who's out doing yard work and is just, I need a break. I need a 15-minute break to catch my breath. It's the rest of a painter who has been painting. And the painter's not tired, but the painter's painting the painting. And then the painter steps back, steps back again and, and says, you know what? This is done. And if I add one more dab of paint, it will no longer be my masterpiece. This is a masterpiece. It, it, so it's the rest of completion, success, and fulfillment in what God has done. Look at the text again. Look at what the emphasis is on. It's not on God's energy level. It's on the completeness of what He made. So again, verse 31, God saw all that He was made and it was what? Very good. Very good. It was perfect. It's what He designed, what He meant to do. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day God had finished the work. So it's all about finishing, completing, making it just right. So that when God sits down on His throne to rest, it's not because He needs to take a load off. It's because 
it is the, the universe that He made to reflect His glory back to Himself has now reached its perfection. And so He sits down in order to savor Himself and what He has done. You know, have you ever thought about that? That, that what, is, what does God do, love to do more than anything else? What's God's number one objective in His life? It's to savor and enjoy Himself. That's why God exists, is to delight in Himself. It kind of sounds weird, right? Because we, we're, not, we're, called, we're not supposed to love ourselves like that, you know, because that would be weird. But for God, it would be weird if He didn't. It would be wrong if He didn't, not just weird. It would be, it'd be a sin if God didn't delight in Himself. Because God is the greatest, most valuable, His glory is the most treasured thing in all the universe. And so because He's a good God, He's committed to that which is most good, which is Himself. Now for us... We're supposed to worship God because He's the greatest good, but you know, what if you are God? Well, then it's yourself. And so God's purpose is to enjoy and savor and expose and delight in His glory and His greatness. That's what God's purpose is. And so that's God's rest, is God's delight in Himself from all eternity, now expressed in the creation. And, and that, so for us to enter God's rest means that we join God in savoring and delighting in that which is best, which is God. To enter God's rest means that you and I sort of go into that seventh day with God and just participate with Him in savoring and treasuring and cherishing that which is of utmost value, which is God Himself. So we, we enter and enjoy God in worshiping God. You know, that, that's why we were created. That's our purpose. So when Adam and Eve woke up you know, the first time and looked around at this world God has made, the whole point of it was to point them toward their Creator to worship and enjoy Him. That's why you and I are on planet Earth. It's to worship and delight in God. That's why we exist. Your life is not pointless. Your life is not a mistake. Your life is not an accident. Your life is not meaningless. You're not just kind of a suburban drone, you know, muttering through life, trying to make money and eat and go see movies and you die someday. That's not the point of our lives, eating and consuming and living. It's, it's to live for God and enjoy God. What does the Westminster Catechism tell us? It says the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you and I exist on planet Earth. And so that's what the seventh day is. It's God's rest. It's God's delighting in the creation, which is a reflection of His worth and value. And, and we participate in that. So now, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to show you two other places in Hebrews 4 now that, that I believe will buttress my argument that entering God's rest means participating with God in savoring and treasuring and worshiping God. That that's, that's what it, it's all about. So I'm going to show you two more texts. So that is the first one. It's in Hebrews 4, verses 3 to 5. Let me show you the second one. It is in Hebrews 6, uh, Hebrews 4, verses 6 to 8. So now what he's going to do, this is, uh, just to try to lay out what he's going to do. We've been talking about the promised land when the Israelites entered it. He took us way back before that to when God created the world. Now he's going to take us after the promised land to the time of King David and show that it still means that we enter God's rest by savoring God, Okay. So let's look, try to follow. This is again where the argument gets convoluted, but I think we can figure it out. So look at verse 6. It still remains that some will enter that rest. 
God's rest is still open. It's bigger than just the promised land. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later, in other words, after the promised land debacle, he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you harden your hearts, do not harden. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day. Okay, so did you follow the logic? Kind of. Yeah. This is this is what I think he's saying. It's like he's saying, look, the promised land was yeah one example of God's rest, but God's rest existed way before it, at creation, and even 400 years after Joshua in the time of King David, God was still saying, you may enter my rest. That's why it says in Psalm 95, written by King David, you may enter my rest. So God's rest is something that is still there. And it was there for the audience of Hebrews and it's there for us. You know, Psalm 95 is continuing to invite us into God's rest even though it's 400 years after the whole promised land incident. It's still open for people today to enter God's rest, to join with God in savoring and treasuring Him. Now, do you remember what Psalm 95 was about, by the way? Let's go back and see Psalm 95 again. This is where it just starts getting so cool. Look at uh, page 591 in your pew Bible. I want to show you from Psalm 95 now. In its original context, it was all about savoring and delighting in who God is. It's on page 591. Psalm 95, right? Verses 8 to 11 is the, the warning that's quoted in Hebrews 3. So if you look at Psalm 95, verse 8, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And down at verse 11 of Psalm 95, So I declared in my oath and my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So Psalm 95 ends with this very stern warning. Be careful. Make sure you enter God's rest. But again, what is His rest? That's our question. Well, look at what Psalm 95, verses 1 to 7 are all about. It's all about savoring and enjoying and delighting in God. So look at verse 1. He says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I'll tell you, that's not very New England. Singing and shouting and, you know, I mean, calm down. Like, don't get up. Unless it's the Patriots, then go bananas. But otherwise, keep it under control. Keep it under wraps. No, 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 no. Like, just go crazy. This is God we're talking about. Sing and shout. You know, make a noise. Look at verse, uh, verse 2. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving. Let us extol Him with music and song. Why, why do they sing so much at church? Because we're enjoying and praising God and music is what God has given us. One of the things He's given us to express our love for Him. Verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry lands. Again, the emphasis on God as Creator. The creation reflecting His greatness. And then here's the invitation again. Come. you know, Enter. Come on in. And let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. The flock under His care. What a, a joyous, rapturous, uh, celebrative invitation to let our hearts be satisfied with God and not other things. 
That's what it means to enter God's rest. That it, it means that I join God in delighting in Himself. Because He is the greatest, most wonderful thing there is in all of reality, in all of the universe. And then let me just show you one more thing in Hebrews 4. This one just like sent me into orbit when I, when I saw this. Like I literally photocopied things from uh, commentaries and was running around handing them out around the office. I'm like, look, look at this. This is great. Can you believe this? I was so excited about this. All right. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of Hebrews 4. So we have God's rest is His glorying in Himself way back then. And it's His glorying in Himself in Psalm 95 and inviting us into it. And then you have uh, this last one here. Look at verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now that word in Greek for Sabbath rest is a very unique word. It's a sabbatismos. It only occurs here in the whole Bible. It very rarely occurs outside of the Bible. And there's a few church fathers after the Bible who use it. So it's this kind of funny, unique, special word. And what it's referring to is, is the celebration and the festivity of the Israelite people and the Jewish people on the Sabbath day. So I don't know. Some of you here may have grown up Jewish. Maybe you have a Jewish family, Jewish background. You're familiar with, especially more uh, Orthodox Jewish families, more conservative Jewish families. The Sabbath day comes and people rest. You know, in, in Orthodox Jewish families, you don't even turn a light switch on because that would be considered kindling a fire. And, and so you, you don't do that. You just kind of rest. But, but what's the point of the Sabbath? I mean, you're resting, okay, so you're not working. But, but so you do what? Just to chill out? I mean, you just lay in your bed all Sabbath and, you know, <laughs> 12 more hours of Sabbath. You know, it's like, no. What, what are they doing the Sabbath? Why did they rest? So that they could do what? Go to synagogue and worship the Lord and hear His Word and, and as the Torah comes around to kiss it, to show respect for the Word of God. And to pray to Him and sing to Him and, and chant the Psalms. I mean, it was, it was to stop working so that you could do something else, which was to delight in and savor and treasure God, to enter into that eternal state of, of where God is eternally being delightful and, and being worshipped. So what does it mean to enter God's rest? It means to join God in savoring and cherishing that which is most valuable, which is God Himself, to join God in that. This is, like I said, why we're here. This is why you and I are put on planet Earth, so that whether you're, you're a little kid or a mom or uh, a professional or a plumber or retired or whatever you do or wherever you are in life, single or married, it's that our whole lives and all we do would be uh, for savoring and glorifying our Maker. That's why you're here. Your life is not meaningless. It's not purposelessness. It, it has a direction. There's a rest to it that we're called to enter. Our problem is we are like the Israelites and we're like, I don't want that. And treasuring God, I think there's other things that I want instead. And so we, we make idols out of the things of this world. We take the creation which was meant to reflect God and instead turn our back on God and turn the creation into a God. It's, that's what idolatry is. And so we, we try to find our meaning, purpose, happiness, life in our work or in relationships or in, you know, alcohol or buying things or hobbies or whatever. 
uh, all of our endeavors, which are not bad things necessarily in themselves in many cases, but we, they take on an idolatrous size in our hearts because we're giving them the place that only God should have as that which most satisfies us. And so we're like the Israelites, wandering around in the desert after the promised land, never at rest, trying this, trying that, trying this, a little of that. That works for a while, then that high wears off, so I'm on to the next thing. And, you know, that's, that's life. There's people staggering around trying to find meaning and not finding anything. So God calls us back to himself. He says, come enter into the, into the promised rest, which ultimately is, is in heaven. You know, that's the ultimate expression of it, but it's something we enter into now, even. Uh, heaven is going to be the place where we fully and completely enjoy God's rest. I know my, my kids, and maybe your kids have asked you about heaven. They're like, what, what goes on in heaven? That seems boring. You know, is there a PlayStation there? Is there, is there anything? Is there golf in heaven? I mean, what am I going to do? You know? People are like, what is heaven? Sit around all day with a harp and a cloud and a you know, white toga. I mean, what, what is heaven? And, and, you know, I just want to tell people, like, heaven, like, think of the greatest, most joyous, wonderful, valuable thing you've ever experienced in this life. You know, what was it? What was the most wonderful thing that you've ever, that moment that was most magnificent? Now, that, that moment was just a tiny fraction, nano example of what it's like to be in the presence of the one who made that moment and made all of this universe. You can't even begin to imagine how wonderful it is to be in the presence of God. You know, so God gives us these little, lame, tiny examples that we can barely hook onto. Because, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for us. You can't even, I can't even imagine it. Even when I try to extrapolate from the little joys I know of this life, to be in the presence of God. And so he is our home. He is our, he's where we're going. As St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are never at rest until they find their rest in you. And that we have to find our rest in God. So, the command from this passage, enter God's rest. Make sure that your life is about connecting with God in terms of savoring and enjoying and treasuring and glorifying Him. Anything less is, is a failure to live up to what God wants us to be in His sin. That's the essence of sin. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You ever think about that whole phrase? In Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And what is sin? Falling short of His glory. Not laying hold of and savoring and treasuring His glory. It's falling short of His glory instead. And so, we need to enter God's rest. Therefore, it says, uh, verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Verse 1, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. You've got to enter God's rest. How do you enter God's rest? What do you do? What do you do? And the answer is very simple. You put your faith in Jesus in response to the Gospel. Look at verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who believe enter. So if you don't have faith in the gospel message, you don't enter. If you do have faith in the gospel message, you do enter. And what's the gospel message? It's that God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners so that we who have turned our back on God can be forgiven of our sins and brought back into re- relationship with God. That's the gospel message. 
And the way you enter God's rest, the way you enter that, that all-life-giving, satisfying relationship with God is through putting your faith in Jesus. Now, l- let me further define a word for you. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? That's kind of a churchy word. You know, just have faith. What does that mean? Let me give you a great definition of faith. This is what faith is. Faith is when you rest on something. So I, I see this here. I put my faith in it, and I rest my weight upon it. And I say, ah, I'm going to trust this. And that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It means you rest your, your soul and your eternity and your hope upon Christ instead of resting it on something else, instead of resting it on, eh, I'm, I'm a decent person, I'm a nice guy, I helped out the homeless shelter serving uh, potatoes at Thanksgiving, or, you know, I do this or I do that, or, or, you know, I'm kind of open-minded, or I try to be decent, or whatever. You know, we have all these things we rest upon. Yeah, I've made it good in this world, I'm well-educated, whatever. And we, we try to put our hope on those things. And you've got to take your weight off those and say, you know what? That doesn't count. I need Christ as my Savior. And so it's a putting the weight of your soul, resting it upon Christ. Look at verse 10. Oh, look at verse 10. Check this out. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. You've got to rest from your own work and rest on Christ. You've got to rest from your own. I can do it. I'm going to fix myself. I'm better than this. And you've got to say, you know what? I've got nothing. I need Jesus. And so come to the cross and rest on Christ as your Savior and trust Him to do that work for you. Because heaven is our home. Heaven is our future. If we have Christ, it is is that eternal rest. But let me ask you the opposite question. I'll sort of leave you with this one. Notice it says in verse 11, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that none of you will fall by following their example of disobedience. If we fall and fail to enter the rest, if we don't come to Christ, then, then what? It, you know, if we don't enter the promised land, then we wander around in the wilderness. Or to take those physical examples to their spiritual endpoints, if we don't end up in heaven by trusting Christ and resting in Him, then where are we? Hell. And what is hell? You know what hell is? Hell is the place of eternal restlessness. Where there is no rest, no hope, no peace, no possibility of parole, no no joy, no hope of joy, and forever and forever and forever realizing the magnitude of the God we have rejected. And it just the, the soul's falling into despair with no bottom to it. It is the place where your soul can never find any smidgen of rest. And so because we reject a God of eternal value, so there must be a punishment of eternal magnitude. So, brothers and sisters, let us, verse 11, therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Let's make every effort to put our faith in Christ and trust in God and to make Him our treasure and our reward. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship You this morning.
with all the songs we sang and with all the texts we read because they all point to you as the great treasure, the one who is wonderful and worthy, of which every good thing in this world is but a faint reflection. And Lord, we pray that you would just expand the the uh, ability of our hearts to savor and treasure you. I pray that, Lord, for all my brothers and sisters. I pray for all of us Christians that, that you would scan our hearts and you would bring back an x-ray for us to see our hearts and that we would see, Lord, if there are things that we have uh, begun to attach ourselves to in a way that, that is idolatrous and turns our back on you. Lord, give us undivided, wholehearted love for you, Jesus. And I pray for anyone here who has yet to enter that rest. I pray, God, that they would begin to see the glory and the joy of knowing Christ. And that, Lord, they would start to look at the wilderness they're wandering in and see it for what it is, a hopeless dead end. And God, I just pray that that you would give them eyes to see Jesus, something I cannot give. But Lord, that you would open up their eyes to see the glory and the value of yourself. And so God, draw us to yourself, wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, draw us closer, Jesus, we pray in your name. Would you please open to number 526 in the celebration hymnal, number 526, the solid rock. And would you stand and let's sing together of Christ, the solid rock in whom we can rest and trust.
to sign up for the men's retreat. And uh, it'll be a great time of spiritual encouragement and unity for us uh, coming just this uh, January. Uh, Some members of our prayer team are here, the Basses and the Gustafsons. They'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you if there's something on your heart. And uh, let's, let's bow in prayer now as we go. Father, we ask that you will burn into our hearts the wonderful joy that you've set before us, the wonderful gift that you've offered.